Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. What's up, guys? Welcome to very clearly not our set. <laughs> if you're watching yeah. on YouTube, probably even listening because things sound differently. I am in New York this week, and my co-host on my other podcast, Listen Money Matters, has been gracious enough to let me use his microphone setup here. As you can see, I've got like this foam pad just <laughs> sitting in front of me. And I also did not plan well enough to give Martin access to my studio, so he is still in Denver, but... That's cool. <laughs> now, this is my place now. This is Actually, my studio. Actually, I, I bet you were going to get comments, and people are going to be like, Martin's set looks better, because there's like 100% more Pokemon in the background of it. There are. There are quite a few. We didn't put any Pokemon in our set at all, did we? Um, Like, we have the Wario Amiibos, we have like the Zelda Amiibos, I've got... That's weird. I've I don't got think like so. A Mega Man Zero thing, but yeah, we didn't put any Pokemon. This is a situation that needs to be rectified immediately. All right, I'll work <laughs> on that. Yeah. Anyway, I'm in New York this week. I'm hanging out with Andrew. Um, and if you guys actually haven't listened to it before, we have a podcast called Listen Money Matters, which is all about personal finance. I know we talked about how to budget correctly last week. So if that was an episode you guys liked, um, listenmoneymatters.com/show is where you can find that other show, and we talk about personal finance every single week so you know if you're a nerd you can check that show yeah. out <laughs> nerd what kind of nerd wants to be financially stable yeah what kind of nerd wants to have money only cool bros are in debt and constantly stressed that's all a the good time. point <laughs> anyway today guys in the podcast uh, we thought we'd do an episode which i think is sort of an evolution out of one question that we answered in a previous five questions episode i believe somebody asked yeah. us like what are some of the most essential life skills that like basically anyone needs to know and there's a million different ways we could go with this episode we could have gone totally practical and been like oh you know nunchuck skills hammer skills knife skills or yes. we could have gone very in the opposite direction and done like only social skills or high level like meta skills. I think what we've come up with is a decent compromise of a list that has a little bit of both. Yeah. So we're just going to go through these. Uh, I know you did more research for these than I did, but we'll just discuss each one and hopefully whatever we end up talking about for each one of these, will give you guys a starting point for improving in that specific skill area. So what's the first one on the list, dude? Well, the first one we got on the list is the ability to start a conversation and or small talk, which also includes making calls, you know, ordering a pizza, calling admissions office to say, hey, I'm confused about this. These kind of things that will that'll give a lot of people social anxiety and then they won't be able to function, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've always had problems with small talk, which may be surprising to anybody who knows me because I seem like an extrovert, but, uh, I don't know. Like small talk is, is like a chore for me. It's like, I have to exert myself and, and put an effort to make it happen. Yeah. Unless well, I just like happen to click with somebody right away and then it's easy. 
Oh, yeah. See, I, I like small talk, but I still have trouble starting it sometimes. And I'm getting better at this because I'm around a lot more people in Denver. Mm-hmm. So like a lot more practice opportunities. But yeah. it's definitely it's definitely something where you'll miss out on a lot if you yeah. can't if you can't just say hi in the right situation. So I know we before we were talking, before we started recording, we kind of had to decide like we can't cover every aspect of every one of these skills because every one of these skills could be its own episode. Yeah. So I'm just going to jump in and, and tell a little story uh, from a couple of nights ago. So do you know who uh, Noah Kagan is? Yeah. He runs like Sumo Me and AppSumo and stuff. I've, I've known Noah Sumo since... Sumo Man. I've known Noah since like 2011, I think. I like reached out to him when I was a very new blogger. And I thought, hey, I'll just interview people and put the videos up on my blog. So he was the second one. Uh and then he sent an email out to his list, which I'm on, saying he was going to a conference in Denver. So I just shot an email back saying, hey, man, I haven't talked to you in a long time. Let's get dinner. And we set up dinner at my favorite restaurant in Denver, which is Ophelia's Electric Soapbox. And uh, so on the way, he's like, dude, can I bring a couple of extra people? And I call Ophelia's because they're a reservation-based restaurant usually, and they're usually pretty busy. And I'm like, I'm sorry to do this, but can we add two more people? Luckily, they could. And um, one of the people who came, she was this girl from Portland who actually happens to know Corbett and Chase from Fizzle, uh, good friends of mine. But she's like this behavior, like psychoanalyst person. And one of the things she does is tries to help people with like how to start conversations and all that kind of stuff. So what she did at the dinner was she's like, I am super interested in conversation starters. And the one I want to do with you guys is like, Let's go around and say something that you used to believe that you realized you were totally wrong about or you don't believe in anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I thought That's it was kind of cool that she like took the lead in starting a conversation with something that wasn't boring. Like, tell me what you do for work or tell me about yourself. Something very um, like generic like that. So we got some pretty cool answers, you know, like ranging from like I used to be this type of religion or political affiliation now I'm not or I used to think that whenever I had a weird quirk about myself nobody else was like that and then I started to realize that everyone has those same quirks and also feels like they're the they're the only person that has that and just kind of spawned a lot of really cool conversations so I think one way that you can start conversations is kind of like be the leader and figure out maybe even pre-plan ahead of time or read up on uh, conversation prompts that can get everyone involved in a discussion and I also noticed that she she didn't try to make it too formal. Like she didn't try to like go in a perfect circle around the table or go right to the next person after one person said their thing. She'd sort of like let an organic conversation happen. And it might take 15 minutes just based off of one person's starting thread. And then if it died down, then we go to the next person. But that kind of like leaves, uh, kind of like it leaves like a lead in. So there's never a lull. Like if you can see that this thread is dying down, there's like something in the queue basically. Oh yeah. So that was pretty yeah. cool. The other thing is um, Noah himself was like, he, he jumped into talking about like really weird relationship things that people normally don't talk about in company they're not really familiar with. Oh, like it's too personal? Yeah, like really personal relationship stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a very uh, easily embarrassed person. So I just like, I'll talk about whatever. I didn't care. But I also found that that was actually a very good way to have a pretty deep conversation right away because like the moment everyone at the table realized like, oh, wow, nobody else here is kind of 
playing their cards close to the chest, trying to, you know, be be too surface level, they felt like they could kind of jump in as well and say things. Oh, yeah. One person takes the awkward plunge and then everyone else makes it not awkward by following. Yeah. I feel like if if people realize you're okay with saying awkward things or talking about awkward conversations or you're okay with uh, conversations that might spawn an argument or something, but you realize that it's not going to turn into a fight because you're a rational person, then they're not going to feel like they need to err on the side of like the weather or just those surface level topics that everyone talks about, which more often than not lead to conversational dead ends and they don't lead to a good connection. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I dominated that first tip and I'm sure you had something written down, so I'll shut up now. (laughs) Well, what I've got, what I've got written down is basically something I've been trying because I've been getting better at this being around more people. And it's kind of similar to what I said on a previous episode about asking for someone's name Mm -hmm. in that if I want to, Let's say I'm waiting on the elevator or I'm just walking and or I'm in an event and I, I run into somebody. If I speak to them in the first five to ten seconds, anything, even if it starts out with the weather and then I shift it to something better or it starts out with something slightly better than the weather, like you guys see the solar eclipse, slightly better, more interesting. But if I start talking in the first several seconds, it is a lot easier than if I sit silently for two or three minutes, and then suddenly I'm thinking, should I talk to them? I've been silent this whole time. They think I'm weird now. It's too late to talk now. I can't say anything. So basically just jump the gun, immediately start it, be the friendly person. Yeah. Because otherwise you're you're going to continue to feel more and more weird as you're like, it's been, it's been 15 minutes now, and I kind of glanced <laughs> over at him a few times because I wanted to say something, and then I, then I just looked away and felt ashamed. This isn't going to work. But – and, and then practicing in low risk scenarios because yeah. any of these is useful. And for me, I, I feel the need to say this because it's kind of counter to what I was told a lot in college about taking speech class, like take it with your friends and stuff. For me, I feel more comfortable not around friends. Like if oh, I go yeah. to an event or if I'm around strangers, I can, I can be confident. I can talk about myself while listening well to others and I can make small talk. Yeah. But if I'm with friends – I'm afraid to do those things because if I fail in front of friends, I know I'm supposed to feel better, but mm-hmm. I feel worse because they're there to remember me failing. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you, though I have a different perspective on it. Um, it depends. So for me, it's not a fear of failure or a fear of embarrassing myself in front of my friends. It's more if I go out to, say, a networking dinner or some sort of social event and I bring a friend I feel obligated to be constantly looping that friend in on the conversation. So if I meet a new person, I feel like if I spend even 30 seconds talking face to face with this person and I notice that my friend isn't in the same conversation actively joining in or they're off having a conversation with somebody else, I feel like I have to bring them in. So I've always struggled with like if I bring a friend to an event with me, just feeling like I'm, I don't know, like. Oh, like you're a chauffeur. Yeah, yeah like I'm a chauffeur or something. or something. Yeah. And um, recently you and I went to like this big dinner at our favorite restaurant again. And I was like, I still had a little bit of that anxiety. Like I'm like, all right, Martin is a big boy. He can figure out how to talk to people on his own. I am a big boy. <laughs> there was you weren't still, even here and I got dressed this morning. That's true. Um, I was still a little bit like before we went in, I was like, is Martin going to be able to get into his own conversations? Like there's just like a little bit of fear in my head. Cause I've been in enough situations with friends who 
aren't as used to networking as me. Like I got into that super early in my friend group. Um, but then once we got there, like I realized, oh, wow, Martin's talking to people that I'm not even having conversations with. Like the moment I saw that you could hold your own in a conversation and I didn't feel like I needed to be your social chaperone or something, I eased up a lot more. And I was like, cool, I can have conversations. Yeah, so now you're allowed to talk. Yeah, and it's it's great when you're like at an event like that and you don't feel like you have to operate as a unit just because you're there as friends. You can both branch out. And if a conversation develops that you're part of, it doesn't mean that your friend has to be part of it too. So I kind of agree with you. If you feel like that, it actually can be more comfortable to go to something like that by yourself. Yeah, and, and not to mention you may feel a little bit of pressure to be the person you are around your friend. Yeah. So if I bring certain friends to something and I'm like, I want to be professional and talk about linguistics with this person, but this friend wants to make stupid video game jokes, I might feel pressured to try and weirdly walk the line between two sorts of parts of who I am. Did you feel weird that first time we all went to the sushi place with Amara and all of our friends and then you guys ended up talking about linguistics? I did a little bit because usually I would be like, this is a conversation, but we're in a group. I want I want a group to be involved. And and also I find it easier to get into deeper conversations on a one-on-one or, or three-people basis yeah. other than a group. But I felt a little weird because I felt like a lot of other people maybe were excluded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so that's part of the fear as well. Like, I feel like I'm excluding yeah, a person like you can get into something good, but but you've got to get into something good at the cost mm-hmm. of kind of ignoring whoever else you brought with you. Yeah. So one thing I want to kind of leave off on for this particular tip is um, interested people are interesting people. So if you can take an interest in something else that is clearly an interest of the other person. And you can start off this way or you can listen well, which we'll get into later, um, and then kind of pick up on something and ask questions about it. That is a great way to keep a conversation going. One way that I'll often start conversations is I'll be like, those are really cool shoes. Where'd you get them? Or like, that shirt fits you really well. I'm constantly looking for better fitting shirts and I can't find them. Where'd you get it? Just like start a quick conversation like that. Or where'd you get your Bluetooth headphones? Just like notice something about them or maybe about what they're doing. And more often than not, they're pretty interested in that thing. So it's a good uh, conversation starter. Or if they mention something, I was at a like a ski vacation last year with some people I didn't know. And we got on the topic of football and like I'm not a big football fan. I don't watch football, but I played football in high school. I've been around people talking about it. You know, I know a little bit about it. So if somebody's clearly interested in football, having a conversation I can sort of just come in and ask questions just because that makes me an interested person and it makes it me easier to talk to. And that might flow into something I'm more interested in later on. But if yeah, I just you shouldn't just in, be like, oh, that's that's really interesting. I'm going to go. Yeah. Or I don't care like, about your story. It's really cool. That you like football. But have you talked about skateboarding? You know, like it's yeah, just it's, you're, trying you're to making it them. selfish then. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's probably. A good yeah. few well, tips we can't spend the whole episode on one of ten. So we're I know, good. right? I realized very early on, like, oh man, this could have easily turned into an entire episode on just this topic. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? If we sp- if we end up spending way too long, we'll just turn it into a two parter. Yeah, it's true. Okay, I don't know. Tip number or skill number two is something I talk about all the time. It is the skill of solution finding. So what I mean by this is is just building the skill and tenacity in your head 
to go out and figure out solutions to problems that don't have, don't have an immediate solution or an apparent solution. And I think a lot of people want to say they are like this, but it's my opinion that fewer people are like this in a general sense, in like every part of their lives. They might be like it in maybe like their job or one thing they're very good at. Um, one thing that I remember my parents used to say about my brother when we were kids is whenever he was doing something like a video game or something he was really interested in, he would do that. But then if it was something else that he didn't care about, he would not be like that. So I'm talking about building a general solution finder mindset, knowing how to find the answers to your problems, being willing to go out and look for them and solve things and try things, maybe even fail before you ask for help from somebody. And I think a lot of people don't have this. I mean, you have probably experienced the same thing that I've experienced. You're sitting in a class, the professor gives a problem or gives a homework assignment. And the moment somebody sitting next to you like runs into some difficulty, they ask for help immediately. I've had that with just me. I had a group project in a database class because we were in a computer business major where the people in it were just like, yeah, I don't really get computer stuff. Could you do this? And I was like, why are you, why are you in this major? It's half computer stuff. I understand that I'm good at it already, but the point is that you're supposed to be good at it by the time we're out of this, but they just deferred to whoever could solve it <laughs> fastest. Let's just get through it. I've already told you, sir, I'm not a computer person. You're not helping me. I'm hanging up now. <laughs> yeah, I've already told you that I'm not willing to learn how to answer these questions. So mm -hmm. if you could just answer it and we could both get on with our day. Thank yeah. you. So one little thing that I want to talk about here is uh, you have to be willing to screw things up a bit and you have to be willing to learn through failures part of the reason that i got fired from the only job i've ever been fired from in high school was because i wasn't willing to do this so i was working at an insurance agency essentially and i got hired as like a bookkeeper so my job was do bookkeeping reconcile credit card statements you know light quickbooks work and then also like some filing and stuff like that and I had never done work like that before. Like I had never really worked with QuickBooks. She had to train me on how to use it from scratch. I basically interviewed very well and I had some other skills that were useful. Um, but I knew like I had this fear in the back of my head, like, man, I'm working with this woman's finances. Like it's the business's finances. And I was so scared to screw something up that every time I wasn't exactly sure that I remembered how to do the things she had taught me how to do, or there was a little edge case that didn't really make sense to me, I wouldn't even sit there and think about it. I'd go over to her desk and I'd be like, hey, I don't understand this part. Can you help me do it? And you know, for the first few times she did that, but eventually she's like, Thomas, I didn't hire you to constantly interrupt me and make me teach you how to do this over and over again. I hired you so I don't have to spend my time doing this. So sit there for like 10 minutes and see if you can figure it out. And it seemed obvious, but I wasn't doing it. So I started doing it and several times I realized, wow, I did figure this out. It just wasn't immediately apparent. Okay, this button was hidden in this little menu. I just had to look for it. Or maybe I had to Google it instead of asking her and wasting her time because there's already an article out there that doesn't waste anybody's time if I go look at it. Now, I didn't learn yeah. this perfectly and it's one of the reasons I ended up getting fired. I also got fired because I didn't respect the culture of the, the workplace very much. I tried to be too independent. Um, and I, I think we may have talked about that in other episodes. I can talk about it in a future episode if people really want, but, uh, that taught me a hard lesson. Like you have to be willing to be independent and we can link to the 
eight habits of successful students video that I made a few weeks ago because we talked about something called the 15 minute rule in that episode. And we also have a full article called something about the course and technique, which is a very similar thing. So those can be in the show notes. Uh, also, before I forget, we also have a, an article the, called the ultimate guide to networking for introverts. So that would be good for tip number one. Oh yeah. And then when you talked about starting a conversation within the first few seconds, my friend Stefano has an article in his site, College Topia, called um, the three-second rule, which is basically that whole concept. Like, if you get the idea ah, to talk to somebody immediately, he was just, two seconds faster it. than me. He was two seconds faster than you. Well, now what am I going to do? Well, I'm if you wait four seconds, it's just the person's too, actually going to be too like, late now. I was actually timing you. I have a stopwatch right here, and you didn't do it in three seconds, so I'm not talking to you. Yeah, you see, guys, <laughs> I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Yeah, still learning. So the the third skill, actually, there's a good segue here because we were just talking about how I got fired back in high school. The third skill is learning how to take criticism or failure in stride. And this is something that is, it may be the most important skill on this list, Um, especially in the context of us being like a student podcast, because I honestly feel like the way the education system is set up doesn't encourage failure and it doesn't encourage screwing up and trying again and just being tenacious. It, it encourages this mindset where you feel like you have to be perfect every single time because you have like an initial assessment and that's where your grade is derived from or like a, a large part of your grade. Yeah. So, you know, in, in part, like it's it's not all bad because it does encourage you to study and be independent about making sure you've mastered the material before the assessment, but it also is bad because it doesn't really give you a chance to come back and and figure things out without there having been a very real consequence that is constantly being told like oh this this matters so much in your life like this is gonna uh, determine what kind of college you can get into what kind of job you get because of the GPA and your resume all that stuff yeah so you so, got to do everything by the book you can't you don't feel safe to experiment with maybe what would have been a much more passionate version exactly. of something yeah um, so I feel like I feel like our education system often ingrains this mindset of you have to be perfect failure is bad failure is not an option and that is opposite uh you know an anathema to the way that people actually build things like every time you've coded something i'm sure you've screwed things up a zillion times not then, once really you've n- yeah. never made okay, a code yeah, editor yeah. man i have mr perfect coder over here <laughs> yeah everything i do is perfect yeah. And I mean, like, there's a great example. And this even comes from school. We had a class. It was like my capstone MIS class during my senior year where we had to code some sort of thing. And I pitched this this product that I've talked about before where it would basically make you wake up and tell you're awake. Otherwise, it would send an embarrassing email to your mom. It's like a threat of social shame wake up tool. Uh, so I coded it from scratch. and I was super proud of it. It was like the most complicated PHP application I'd ever built. And it was working perfectly for me when I was testing it. So as I'm in class, I'm doing some final tests before the presentation starts, and then my name is called. I go up to the front of the room, plug my laptop in, get the VGA connection all set up, and then bring the site up, hit load, and it crashes. <laughs> like It was the most inopportune timing ever, and I'm like, well, this is what it would do, but for some reason it's not working right now. <laughs> so I'm horribly embarrassed. Fearing for my grade, um, come to find out later, it turns out when you open a connection to your database on your website in PHP, 
if you're using like the very, very old school base level database connection command, you also have to close that connection to your database when you're done. I didn't know that. I had never, I had just, maybe I missed it in the documentation. Maybe the documentation page didn't mention it. Um, and there, there had like been invented better methods for connecting to databases, but I didn't really understand how to use them and I wanted to get the project done quickly. So I just used the really base layer one. Well, because I wasn't connecting or closing all those connections to my database, I was taxing my server and just adding more load, more load, more open connections. So by the time I got to the front of that class, it must have just crossed that threshold where whatever amount of, of uh, resources my server had been allocated was just totally maxed out. Couldn't open another connection, had to be closed. I had to call support up and have them reset my server. And if I had gotten like a failing grade for that, like what does that teach me? It teaches me, oh, don't even try. Because yeah, only try the easy things. Yeah, only try the easy things. Only try the things where you absolutely know that you can triumph the first time. Because there, there was really no way I was going to catch that. But you know what? Now I know. Now I know. Close your database connections or use a more advanced uh, modern method for opening connection to a database. When I build a new application in the future or when I go improve that one, boom, now I know. Because failure is a great teacher. So you have to learn to, to look at failure that way. Look at failure as a teacher, not as a you suck label and same yeah. thing with criticism you know um and with criticism i think of criticism in a couple of different ways so criticism that is constructive you have to ask yourself does this person care about me if they do you take it seriously now sometimes that criticism sucks because they just don't know what's good for you for example on my youtube channel every single video i make there will be somebody saying you speak too fast and there will be somebody else saying you speak too slow speed it up Obviously, I can't listen to both pieces of criticism. You know, yeah. they are valid as opinions, but they are not, they are not equally valid as actions I should take because they are opposing. Yeah, so you can't I have just to, blindly take all criticism. Yeah. So for criticism, you have to ask yourself, you think critically, does this criticism make sense for the goal I'm trying to achieve for this point in my life? And does this person care about me? If the person doesn't care about you, then their criticism isn't is less criticism and more just insult. Yeah. And it hurts and it's always going to hurt. Like I've been doing YouTube for three years. I've heard every bad comment you can hear. Um, I'm pretty good at dealing with it, but like there's just this initial every single time there's an initial like really, or that's so dumb. I want to like come back with something you just have to learn to take it in a stride and you have to just have to, I, I, I think it really helps to tell myself this person doesn't care about me. They probably have a bunch of other problems in their life. They're probably just venting their own frustrations out on somebody else because that's what we imperfect ape descended mammals like to do. And then I just move on from it. If the person yeah. doesn't care about me, this shouldn't matter to me. It still feels like it does, but I have to tell myself it shouldn't matter to me and then I'll move on. It helps me move on more quickly. Yeah, and at least you know which things to move on from and which you should not move on from because they're legitimate good criticism. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost like a little flow chart or algorithm for dealing with criticism that you can sort of start, a, sort of start building in your head. Yeah. Maybe I should make a video on that, actually. That sounds like a good video topic. So, yeah, maybe see that on the, on the uh, channel in the future. All right, what's the next skill? The next skill is listening skills. Okay. Now, what exactly is listening skills? Well, 
obviously that could umbrella a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think for these purposes, though, I, I would like to emphasize, you know how in a lot of conversations we're actually just kind of waiting our turn to say something clever. Like they say one sentence, we say, I have an anecdote. It involves me. It's my anecdote. And then you ignore their next four or five sentences that change the topic and you try to bring it back to your own clever thing just so you can feel cool and smart. That's that's not a good thing. You shouldn't do that. In fact, I know people who they won't say anything about it, but they're talking, they're telling a story. And if you interrupt them, if you make a stupid aside, some joke that wasn't necessarily on topic and didn't add to the conversation, they'll just kind of start their sentence over. They won't say anything. They won't go, I'm really irritated that you did that. You, you're disrespecting me and it feels bad. They'll just start the sentence over until they can get the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. And that is just when people do that, they're not saying it, but it feels bad. And you are not going to make yourself a lot of friends by making people feel like you don't respect what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's probably the main thing that I would have pointed out about listening skills. Uh, I do have a couple of other things in mind though. So, you know how sometimes you're in a group and you really want to say something, but every time there's a small break in the conversation, it's just not enough for you to say your thing. And it's so frustrating. Somebody else quickly jumps in. Everyone else in the group probably feels that at some point as well. So... I think one of the crucial skills in listening is to, yes, be very engaged in what the person who is talking has to say, but also just kind of be paying attention to the body language and nonverbal cues of anyone else in the group. And if it looks like when one person, like person A, stops talking, if it looks like the other person next to him has something to say, they're getting ready, but then somebody else jumps in, make a mental note of that. And then when person C over here stops saying what they were going to say, you can jump in and say, I think they wanted to say something. Because some people are not quite as assertive as they could be and they don't, you know, push in. And they usually end up getting pushed out of conversations or just kind of have to stay quiet the whole time. So if you have a little bit more of that quickness or a little bit of that assertiveness, then you can use that to help somebody else. And they're going to either going to respect you a lot more. They're going to be really appreciative of that. Uh, The other thing is... Pay attention to your own body language while you're listening. So I think an obvious thing with when it comes to listening skills is to listen actively. Like you said, don't be constantly thinking about what your response is or your little witty retort. I can see you on your phone over there. Exactly. What, what was that? <laughs> I've got, yeah. So yeah, don't be playing Pokemon Go while I'm talking to you. Um, use your body language to communicate to the other person that you are engaged and that they are the only thing that matters to you right now. In fact, a lot of times when I hear about famous entrepreneurs, famous founders, people who are insanely successful, one of the things that is often said about them is, I feel like even though this person is super ultra mega successful, when I'm talking to them, I have their full attention. Nothing else matters to them. Uh, This is something people say about Jeff Bezos a lot. Jeff Bezos is obviously second richest person in the world right now. Um, you know, he runs Amazon, so he's an incredibly busy guy. But one thing people will tell you about him is that when he's listening to you, he's only listening to you. He's not distractedly looking around the room or he's not shaking his leg as if he's uh, anticipating getting out of there. He's not checking his phone. So pay attention to your own body language. Are you actively looking at the person in the eye while they're talking? Are you using nonverbal cues like nods or saying things like, yeah, and uh-huh? 
to kind of signify that you understand what they're talking about and you're following it? Or are you doing things like checking your phone or looking around the room or even doing things like shaking your leg or doing some sort of nervous tick with your hand that makes it look like you're kind of in a hurry and you really want them to stop talking? Yeah. You and might even be even, doing it. Even if they're, even if it's not that you're not listening. Yeah. Yeah. You might be doing it unconsciously. You know, maybe you, um, play with your ear, play with your hair or something, but it kind of like signifies that maybe you're thinking about something else. or you'd rather be doing something else. So just sort of pay attention to those cues and pay attention to people that when you're talking to them, it seems like they're super engaged. Like you've probably got people, you know, when you talk to you're like man i really have the floor this person only cares about me and there are probably other people you can think of where you don't feel like that you feel like you kind of have to hurry up because they're always seeming to be pushing you to get done talking pay attention to the differences between those two kinds of people and then see what you can learn from the former category one thing i've started doing is um and i think this happens in a lot of couples and relationships where the, the the cordiality and the manners and communication often break down because you know each other so well. You know, it's, it's kind of like just farting around each other. No matter what you say, it happens after a few years. Uh, so Anna, a lot of times, will pull out her phone and start texting while I'm talking to her. And I'll do one of two things. I'll just stop talking and I'll often stop walking while she's doing it until she realizes. <laughs> and I'll just kind of like say, I'm not going to talk until you put your phone away. Or... Without changing my tone of voice or rate of speech, I'll just start talking about something completely ridiculous. Someone <laughs> telling a story like, and then ninjas attacked and Optimus Prime came out of the earth and spit lava at me, but I actually deflected with my ninja sword. And I just see how long it takes for her to realize that I'm spewing complete nonsense. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, it's no problem. I just I noticed that it seemed like you wanted a pause in the conversation. So I was <laughs> I was just obliging. That's all. Yeah. And I don't want to pick on her too much because I, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I check my phone too, but I'm trying to be conscious of it. If my phone rings in my pocket while I'm talking to somebody, I don't take it out because I don't care who it is. It could be freaking Jeff Bezos calling me. They're not as important as the person I'm talking to right now. They will leave yeah. a voicemail. And if they don't leave a voicemail, they don't care about me as much as the person who is clearly talking to me right now who wants my attention and who's going to give me their attention when it's my turn to talk. Yeah. They're giving you their physical time. Yes. To do something. And if somebody else doesn't care enough to leave a 30 second voicemail or call back, then obviously that's a lot less than giving you a big chunk of their day to stand there next to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think these listening skills are also very, they're very related to focus skills because often it's not that we're uninterested in the person. It's just that we're so conditioned to respond almost uh, instinctively or reflexively to a phone vibration because it's like a little bit of novelty. Ooh, what could it be? So I almost <laughs> feel like it, um, deliberately listening to somebody you're talking to in conversation is actually going to help you with your ability to focus on your work as well because it is an exercise in focus. Yeah, especially since the phone is one of the biggest for both your work probably also. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. All right, skill number, what is this, five? Um, I can't count. I didn't learn that one. Pretty um, sure it's five. <laughs> I can count to five. Oh yeah. I scrolled down too far and got confused. It's five. Oh, okay. Yeah. I actually didn't write notes for this episode. unlike you. And it was weird because I, I was looking at it this morning and I was a little bit 
anxious that I didn't write notes because I'm like, what do I talk about when it comes to starting a conversation or small talk? It's one of those things where when the pressure isn't on, your brain doesn't bring up anything. Yeah. But when the pressure is on, like now we're recording. Um, and I think the fact that we don't edit anymore actually kind of helps. Yeah, you better come up with some <laughs> things just come up. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so skill number five is one of our, I think it's our first skill that's very practical hands on. Yeah. And it is learning how to cook. That's a nice skill. Yeah. Uh, I think you did this first, right? Yeah, because um, several years ago, I don't remember when it was anymore, but we watched you, Clyde and I watched uh fat sick and nearly dead mm-hmm. or something to that effect something about maybe it wasn't that one it was maybe that it one. was a different one okay i don't there are too many like health documentaries but the, the dude was making a lot juiced. of smoothies yeah, yeah he, like, he juiced things he juiced things yeah and he was getting super healthy and doing all these things and eating less processed foods and i didn't want to like lose weight and juice but it did inspire me to fix my problem with vegetables that I had had ever, ever since I was a kid. Like I was a very picky eater yeah. and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go vegan next month. I'm going to follow a vegan diet because if I can't learn how to eat vegetables next month, then I guess I can't eat next month. Yeah. I better figure it out. I'm not just going to eat bread every day. And then, so that actually challenged me to, to get way out of my comfort zone. And one of the first things, a couple of the first things that I cooked were just spinach uh, with some garlic and olive oil just sauteed and then in the stir fries because those things are both very easy mm-hmm. you just kind of throw them in pans and move them around with heat yeah and the recipes themselves aren't super important but i think it's nice to start out with something easy and yeah. if you put some sort of food challenge like i'm gonna cook some sort of thai food this week or this week i'm gonna buy sauces that have to do with Moroccan food and then I'm going to make those kind of recipes until I run out of sauce. Mm -hmm. The challenge makes it fun and a couple easy staple recipes are going to help you so much when you can't think of anything and almost anything that you might think to make at home, almost anything, is going to be cheaper and probably healthier than almost anything that you're going to go buy somewhere else that's already prepared. Yeah. Definitely an almost, though. You can fry Oreos at home. That doesn't make it smart. <laughs> but fried Oreos are so good. They are. Those they Oreos do provide a lot of vitamin, um, vitamin O. Vitamin fat. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> uh, I noticed that since moving to Denver, Anna and I have eaten out so much more. And so Anna's bike got stolen. That's another thing we learned about Denver. You got to be a lot more careful about your belongings yep. in a bigger city. So I'm just like, the other day I was like, you know what? I really want to ride bikes with my girlfriend. So I'm just going to buy her a new bike. So I went and bought her a new bike and we're driving home. And I'm like, you know, this is sad, but I feel like I could offset the cost of this bike in like a month or two if we just stopped going out to eat. That stuff adds up fast. <laughs> it really does. Like you don't realize, well, I'm, I'm paying for two people, you know, and then you have tip. And yeah. you get used to going to nicer places. So I'm like, man, you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to make a challenge where we just cook six nights a week. We'll go out once a week. That's it. So we're going to do that when I get back. Uh, so a couple of things that I've learned, because we, we kind of um, fluctuate between periods of going out to eat way too much and periods of me being actually disciplined for cooking. So a couple of things I've learned. Number one, 
making a list and going to the grocery store, planning out your meals. I would literally go on a Google calendar and on the little all day events every day for a week, I'll plan out like, okay, Monday is going to be chicken asparagus and ciabatta rolls. Tuesday is going to be chili. Wednesday is going to be tacos. Thursday is going to be frozen pizza night. We're lazy that night. And Friday is going to be grilling out with friends. So when I have all those meals planned out for the week, now I can create a grocery list that is inclusive of all the ingredients for every single one of those meals. So I go to the grocery list on Sunday, buy everything in bulk. I now have everything. So that eliminates one excuse for not cooking. Another big excuse is having a messy kitchen. So making sure to clean your kitchen completely back to perfect or neutral or whatever you want to call it after you finish your meal will ensure that when you come in the next day, everything is in its place, ready to be used. There isn't any friction to starting it. And then another big thing is um, cooking in bulk can really help to build that cooking habit. Because one of the things that keeps me from cooking as regularly as I'd want is I'll get a burst of motivation. I'll cook something amazing. And then the next night comes around. I'm like, I got to do all that again. And I hate like repeated things when they don't seem to be contributing to like the, the, the building of something greater. So I understand like cooking healthy food is going to make me healthier. I get that. But when it comes to breaking down it into components, I'm like I already washed that pan last night. I got to wash it again. I got to wait for it mm. to heat up again. I got to crack all these. Like it's just all these repeated motions. So what I found is when I cook in bulk, I can not have to cook every single night. And, you know, maybe three days later, I've reset my motivation to do all those annoying tasks involved in cooking. So a good way to be able to cook in bulk is to make like big stir fries or to make really hearty soups um, or to do a slow cooker. Like you could just like throw potatoes and whatever you want, really. Slow cooker, you could just, you could pick a protein, pick some vegetables, um, do like, vegetable broth or chicken stock or something in there, throw some sauce in there, tomato sauce, you're good to go. There's all kinds of recipes online. Um, The only recipe I'll mention, because I don't want to overwhelm people, is my favorite bulk recipe is Ukrainian red borscht, which is just like this uh, red soup with tomatoes and cabbage and um, a bunch of other vegetables. It's really just like a giant vegetable soup, but it's really hearty because it has um, potatoes and beets in it. That's what it is. And it's super tasty. And, you know, I can make a big half-gallon pot of that, and it'll last all week. Yeah. Yeah. But like you said, just, you know, pick a few recipes. And once you start learning how to make recipes well, you start to establish a base of skills. Because in addition to knowing the recipes, cooking is a skill that breaks down into many different sub-skills. How to properly peel a vegetable, how to properly cut or dice or um, chop vegetables, how to properly know what temperature to cook things at, knowing the smoking points of different oils, knowing like this vegetable should be cooked for this amount of time. This vegetable maybe needs to be cooked for a little bit less. So the order you put things in matters. And there are courses you can take or videos you can go look at. I know um, on Skillshare, there's like a knife skills class you can take or just like cooking essentials. Um, You can probably find stuff like that on YouTube as well. But once you have that down, now, when you look at, your, at a recipe and it's like, dice these vegetables or maybe even like a little more advanced uh, word that I can't think of, it won't make you think, well, this recipe, I can't do it. I'll quit. Like, you know how to do it now. Yeah. And it may be best to kind of pick one or two skills, do a few recipes with those, learn them, mm-hmm. and and then move on to a different skill rather than 
Like if you try to, I'm going to learn six skills to make this meal. Yeah. And then at some point you might just realize all I wanted was dinner. It's been like four hours. (laughs) This is the worst thing ever. But if you learn one skill at a time, that same meal might just take you a little bit like it's automatic after you've learned the skills separately. Yeah, exactly. All right. Skill number six is a small amount of DIY ability. So this encompasses many things, but I didn't want to make a an entry on our giant list of essential life skills be something super small like changing a tire. Um, but what I found is embracing a bit of a DIY mindset and learning how to work with things physically helps in many different situations, ranging from the simplest like being able to change a light bulb to something maybe a little more complicated like learning how to build a shelf or I'll give you a good example. Um, you know that old car I gave you yeah. a couple of years ago? I drove that car since I was 16 years old. It was a 1998 Chevy Malibu, tan, old. When I got it, it had 150,000 miles on it, and I drove that sucker up to 225,000 miles before I gave it to you. Well, the that that like model, whatever year range that they were doing that body style, had a common problem where the air conditioning would stop working. And my car had that problem. And I'm like, does this mean the Freon is empty or whatever? Well, no, it turns out with that car, it's a problem with the control and the center console. And I took it to a shop and he's like, yeah, it's going to be about $600 to fix this. So I didn't have $600 laying around at the time. I was a college student. I look on YouTube and I just Google how to fix 1998 Chevrolet Malibu air conditioning. Find a video. And this dude's like, Yeah, really what it is, is this one stupid dial on the front uh, control panel thing, whatever amount of graphite or contact that they put on it was insufficient to make a good electrical connection with the control. So when you're turning on the hot to cold thing to actually get the cold to kick in, it's not telling the engine to actually put the cold air on. That's why it's just blowing room temperature air Mm -hmm. at you. So all I got to do is pop this center cover off and then use a couple of tools to um, take this knob off, take a pencil, literally just a number two pencil, and just draw on that little contact plate so you're kind of rubbing some graphite material onto it, put it all back together, and it'll work. So I figured out how to do that, and it, it required me taking that whole cover panel off of the center console. I actually had to take apart the ignition switch. It wasn't as hard as it seemed. It was a little intimidating to start, but in about 20 minutes, I had it all back together, turned the car on, boom, cold air. Nice. So it cost me, you know, one one-thousandth of a pencil <laughs> to yeah, fix that's, that $600 Yeah, that's a pretty good problem. profit margin. Exactly, yeah. Not to mention a confidence boost that means I'm no longer helpless. Yeah, it's a confidence boost. And I had the benefit of having a dad who sort of forced me to do things like this. Um, or, you know, he'd force me to do sometimes or we'd just do it sometimes. Like I wanted to build a, or I wanted him to build us a clubhouse in the backyard when we were kids, and he made me help him. Like I had to hold boards and and drill some of the holes. Uh, my grandpa is like an insanely good DIYer. He literally built a whole shop in his backyard where he just like builds furniture all day. And he, his whole job now he's retired, but he goes around town and fixes people's like handyman problems. Like he'll re-roof somebody's house hmm. or stuff like that. So it kind of runs in my family. Um, but being a computer person. I didn't get into it as much as my grandpa did, for example. 
So it's really just been like an independent process of be confident enough to to know you can fix certain things on your own with a little bit of effort and then just go try it. And in the process of doing that, you're going to acquire a couple of things. You're going to acquire some practical DIY knowledge that will allow you to fix things. And you're also going to acquire tools. You're just going to need to. Like I'm at the point now where I have like a pretty well-stocked tool bag that allows me to fix most problems around the house. I can easily change a tire uh, or, you know, like, oh, good example. Remember your girlfriend, her tire popped in the middle of the road one time. Yes. And I went out and I was like, I know how to fix this. Get the jack out of the car, jack the tire up, put the spare on. You're good to go. You know, tighten the lug nuts in a star pattern. These things, you just, you learn them, and then now you have this base of practical knowledge. And the really nice thing is most people don't know how to do this stuff. So that makes you their superhero. Yeah, and what happens if your tire pops and you have no cell reception? Now you can't Google it, so tough luck with using the internet for all your problems all the time. That's true, yeah. Actually, you know, that that gives me an idea for a uh, secondary tip. I wonder if there's like an app you can download that just has oh like local off, information yeah, for local this stuff? offline articles on these kind of things that are likely to happen when you're outside of cell range that'd be cool i know like you can buy the art of manliness book which ha- i think has an article on that like the art of manliness website has been around for years and they really that's where i got my uh, car battery jumping thing when yep. i had to jump when thing. you google how to jump a car the art of manliness article comes up yep. yeah i think i always remember as like Red dead, black dead, black. You know what? It, yeah. See, now I gotta go. Every time I do, yeah, I have to see, look it up. <laughs> even if I'm only ninety percent, even if I'm ninety percent sure, I'm not touching it until I've verified. <laughs> it's it's pretty important. Yep. Yeah. See, I gotta go read. I always like make a little mnemonic, and then whenever I try to tell it to somebody, I'm like, I second guess myself. I'm like, wait a minute, is that is that real or is that not real? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's just let's just stick to things wherever we want and see what happens. Yeah, I actually don't even want to say what I think it is in the podcast because somebody will just take it as Tom's probably right, and then they'll go try it. So yeah, go look it up if you have to jump a car battery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know with one of the batteries you don't put the jumper cables on both terminals. You put the black one on a piece of metal like the frame or the engine somewhere, but I can't remember which one it is. So I'd have to look it up again. But I mean that yeah. goes back to the solution finding skill. Yes, you want to build a little bit of DIY knowledge, but you also need to be willing to say, I don't actually remember all of this and I know where to go find this, the solution. So I think part of the DIY mindset is learning when to put your pride aside and oh, yeah. look the answer up. In fact, I had that with Ashley. Um, when I went to her car to help her, I, I pulled the jack out and I was like, actually, the mounting point for the jack is not readily apparent on this Saturn. I've only ever done it on my Chevy. It's different on a Saturn. So I had to like sit there on Google for 10 minutes looking up diagrams of Saturn cars from her year to figure out where that jack point was because I didn't want to screw up and put the jack in the wrong point and like crack the shell of her car on the outside or put it somewhere where it was going to break something. So yeah, check your pride at the door because your pride is not worth as much as the car you're about to break if you put the jack in the wrong point. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it'll also tell you when you should probably just pay a professional for something yes yeah definitely i remember when i was i was gonna try to fix the engine in your old old car because i was interested in cars at the time and then i looked up a video and i was like this is beyond me 
there's yeah. there's a point where you know like you just don't have the tools for this it's very likely you're not going to succeed so you know by all means try it if, it if the stakes aren't very high but i'm like this is my roommate's car i probably shouldn't break it more than it's already broken <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah all right uh what's the next one learning how to learn okay nice like, big abstract of, one yeah that's like the point of my whole channel almost yeah it is <laughs> Uh, I'd say we can talk about uh, a bit about skill deconstruction. Okay. That'd be useful. And I would like to, just a little bonus thing, programming and language learning have both helped me learn things very well because both, and I'm sure other things do this as well, both of them require the ability to detect and decipher patterns very quickly. Mm. And being able to detect and decipher patterns is like one of the basis, it's like a basis of learning. Like yeah. you learn things because you, you figure out how they work and why they work and what you can do that does what result. I think pattern recognition is like one of the things that makes us human. Yeah. It's a pretty, so pretty important thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what did you learn about skill deconstruction that we can kind of communicate quickly here? Well, I know there's this book and I actually, I kind of want to read it now, but there's this book called the 20 hour rule or something oh, the first for that effect. Hours. That one. The first 20 hours by Josh. It's that book. And it's all about how um, through through skill deconstruction, basically there's this 10,000 hours rule mm-hmm. that's like you can become a master in something after 10,000 hours of conscious effort. Yeah. But then the first 20 hours is saying, yeah, but you're going to learn a huge chunk of that mm-hmm. with the first 20 hours of trying something when you're building the ground level work of everything. And you want to yeah. do that by finding out the basic skills involved in each thing. Like if I wanted to learn to do skateboarding, if I wanted to learn skateboard and I didn't already feel comfortable riding on a board right now, one of the skills that's going to be pretty damn important before I try to do a kickflip is how to ride the board without falling off, how to stay balanced. Yep. <laughs> if I don't, if I don't take that skill and learn it separately and I just start to do like a 7,020 McFlippy twist grind, I'm that's going to die. Pretty good trick. It is a pretty good trick, isn't it? It's like 10,000 <laughs> points in Tony Hawk. But there are basic skills and you need to learn one and then maybe the next one that's a slight bit above that and a slight bit above that and then you can do a kickflip. Yeah. But if you just think, oh, I'm going to learn a kickflip. I'm just going to do the whole thing right now. It's one thing. It's not one thing. And if you see learning these new skills as one thing, then you are probably going to be disappointed and overwhelmed when you realize that there are 30 mini steps along the way. Yeah. Is there a name for like the reverse of an exponential growth curve where like it it ramps up really quickly first, but then like it just like the long tail takes forever to get to. I don't know if there's a name for it, but I often view skill development that way. And I think like the 10,000 hour rule kind of discourages people because they feel like, oh, it's going to take me 10,000 hours of practice and I can only practice two hours a day, you know, to get good at this. It's like, no, 10,000 hours is mastery, world class become the best violinist in the world kind of thing. But you could learn how to play hot cross buns on the violin in probably two hours of practice. So for most skills, you can build a decent base and learn the basics, learn something at least to be good enough or sort of competent in a pretty short amount of period of time relatively. So you're kind of like shooting up real fast. And then to get really good that's when it starts to taper off and your progression starts to become a little bit slower and slower and slower because you're eking ever so ever so you know slightly towards that mastery level whatever that is um yeah you can learn how to ride a bike you can learn how to ride a bike down a hill 
you can even learn how to jump a bike off of a ramp pretty quickly. But I just watched a video this morning of like these Red Bull mountain bikers backflipping off of cliffs and landing it. And it's like that is 10,000 hours of skill on display right now. And that's yeah. going to take you a long time and probably a lot of injuries to be able to do. But if you just want to ramp your bike off of a small kick ramp in the street, you can do that pretty quickly. I was doing that when I was eight years old. You know? Yeah, I don't think I have any plans to jump off cliffs in the next week. Yeah, that's that's some pretty intense stuff. Or same thing and, but with this, piano, you know. Oh yeah, and that that actually reminds me. Um, one thing that's good about this, and one thing that you should do is if you're going to be practicing something, say piano, because I've been trying to get better at piano. But I will say that I've kind of been maintaining piano for the last couple weeks because a lot of what we try to do, if we're going to do 5, 10, 20 minutes of practice of some nonsense a day, it's like if I chose to do five push-ups every day, Mm -hmm. right, knowing that I can do more than that, I'm not really pushing myself, and maybe I'll maintain my current level of muscle if I just maintain minimally active if I mean, if I stay minimally active, there's the verbs I want. There's the verbs I want, but I won't make any progress unless I consciously try to challenge myself. So with piano, I'm not going to make a whole whole lot of progress unless I sit down and say, I'm going to practice this skill. And when it, when it starts to get a little difficult, I'm not just going to jump to a different song. I'm not just going to jump to something else and go, yeah, but that's not comfortable anymore. I want the easy one. It doesn't really matter how many hours I put in then if they are just maintenance hours, they don't count toward mastery. Yeah, exactly. Helping. I just remembered the name of that mathematical curve I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. Logarithmic curve. So an exponential curve would be starts out slow, then ramps up. The classic hockey stick that you see, logarithmic would be kind of the opposite, where it starts out very quick growth, but then your gains decrease over time. So okay. that that's really what skill development is like. Um, we have an article and video on the site called How to Learn a New Skill in Under 20 Hours. And it's all about this um, this process of breaking down skill acquisition into component parts. So definitely go read that if you're interested in this. I'll break it down real quickly here. So the four-step process, first you want to deconstruct the skill into smaller components. So say you want to learn the guitar. There's a lot of different things involved in learning the guitar, such as how to strum correctly. When I first started playing guitar, I only downpicked, meaning I held the pick and I strummed the string downward. And then I would bring my hand back up and strum it downward again. And it took me forever to learn how to, how to alternate pick where I'd strum the string downward and strum the string upward, kind of coming back up. So I had to learn that. And then I had to learn how to do that correctly while playing on multiple strings on a scale. You know, so that's one different little tiny mini skill. Um, the way that Martin plays guitar is through finger picking most often, which is a very yeah. different skill. You're using multiple fingers. Each one of them is kind of assigned to a different string. And you know, your thumb might be on the, the bottom E string, and the X finger might be on the A string, etc. And you're like holding your fingers on your left hand in different chords and then picking with multiple. Like, I haven't even learned that very well yet. On your left hand, you've got chords. You got your cowboy chords, you got your power chords, you have scales, you have learning modes, learning the, the relationship between the major and the minor scale, how to read tabs versus how to read standard notation music, which is your typical music with notes and treble clef or a bass clef. There's all these different uh, mini skills kind of. So really, you want to break your skill into these things and then figure out which of them that you that you really care about the most. So I want to play like Dragon Force. Well, that means I probably need to learn how to play scales really fast. I need to learn how to alternate pick. Those are my main two skills. 
So then go learn as much as you need to right now to start practicing each subskill. So buy a course or buy a dummies book or get a coach or something quick, you know? Yeah. Three, eliminate barriers to success. Maybe find an accountability partner so you don't burn out quickly. Maybe figure out how to create like a solid hour in your schedule every single day without fail. Um, We talked about the 20 second rule where maybe like for guitar, you put the guitar on a stand in your room so you can grab it right away when you have a spare second instead of putting it in the case where you'll never play it and then track your progress, like all these kind of things. Lastly, practice deliberately. So, and that doesn't mean just noodling around on the guitar or whatever skill it is, like, like you said, maintenance kind of thing. Deliberate practice means pushing yourself to do something that is a bit beyond your comfort level. So in your case, I know you've been playing that, uh, that song from Twilight Princess, I think on piano. And every day I'd come into your apartment, I'd see you playing a different section of it. And like, I don't know, after a few days, you were really good at one section, but then like the next session you still couldn't get. And then I come up. Yeah. So I I try to do one section and then try to move on to the next section. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of like encoding that pattern in your brain of that one section. And now it's almost automatic. I'm guessing. Yeah. The next session is not. And that is how you get good at skills. But we will have that article linked in the show notes as well. So if you want to read more in depth about skill acquisition, definitely check that out. All right. So skill number eight, is it? Yes. Uh, Yes. Yes. Eight. Eight. Yeah. Three more is how to talk about yourself. Uh, was this one of mine? Um, I honestly don't remember. I feel like <laughs> either one of us might have said this. Okay. Yeah. So this is a tough thing because a lot of people are afraid of bragging or they don't really just, they don't know how to describe what they're doing in different contexts. So you want to start learning how to Talk about yourself when you have just a few seconds to kind of pitch what you're doing, maybe in a professional context, maybe at a career fair or at an interview. If an interview says, tell me about yourself, like, what do you say? Or in a friendly context, how do you talk about yourself without appearing like you're vomit or you're vomiting? <laughs> you had the yeah. word vomiting in the show notes. Appearing yeah. like you're bragging or vomiting. Actually, that's a pretty good skill. Don't vomit well, don't, while you're talking don't do about that. yourself. That won't, that won't help at the career fair. Yeah, that's... You know, those Armani suits, it's hard to scrub puke out of them. So those interviewers yeah. are not going to be impressed. <laughs> now, word vomiting is a little more abstract than that. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how to go into this one because it's, it's very broad. But I think one of the things you can start doing that will make you better at talking about yourself is to get past that feeling that you're bragging. Because yeah. I find in most cases, unless you're a jerk, most people err on the side of being too cautious, uh, too humble, and they won't say what they're really into. And what this does is instead of making you seem humble, it makes you seem uninteresting. So you're not you're straight up not willing to really take credit for anything that you do yeah. or talk about the things that matter to you. You're not, yeah, you're not really putting something out there. Um I think a lot of people are afraid that what they do or what they're into is either going to seem weird to people or it's going to seem uh, insignificant. Uh, And so the the example that comes to mind recently is my girlfriend, Anna, just started a YouTube channel where she like customizes dolls and she that's her thing. She likes to do that. She likes to like, you know, figure out how to paint the faces, make clothes, all that kind of stuff. But she's like 
she's afraid that people are gonna think it's weird. So every time that I've been with her and somebody asks like, oh, what's your channel about or what do you do? You can see, like I could see her kind of like clam up a little bit and get embarrassed and like oh. really timidly say it. And every time it's happened, I'm like, Anna, you just gotta say confidently that you like to do this and it's fine. Like if somebody thinks it's weird, do you want to be associated with that person anyway? Because that's what you love to do. So I've, I've kind of watched over the past few times that people have asked her about this culminating in that dinner with Noah the other night when she got asked about it and she confidently said it. It was great. And nobody judged her for it. They were like, oh, that's cool. And they were asking more questions about it, digging into it, kind of started a good conversation. And I'm like, good, there you go. You know, now you're talking about yourself. So I think one of the first things is just become confident about what you're doing. If you like to do it, there's no reason to be scared about it, about people thinking you're weird or creepy or nerdy or whatever it is. And one thing I found, and maybe this helps with people's mindsets, is if somebody thinks a certain hobby or pursuit is weird, one of the things that starts to erase that belief or reform it is when they see examples of people that they like or that they think are normal doing that thing. Yeah. I mean, look at 20 years ago. 20 years ago, PC gaming, even console gaming, was thought of as a super nerdy thing. Like, if you play video games, you were a nerd. And, like, not a nerd in a cool sense, because being a nerd is cool now. Like, you're social outcast. People thought that you were unhealthy, probably, had no, no social skills, all that kind of stuff like, like, like that. There's, like, all those stereotypes. And now, PC gaming is huge. There's, like, StarCraft tournaments that get more viewers than some professional sports games. Esports is huge. Everyone plays video games. And... That happened for a reason. It happened because, at least in part, that stigma went away when people who other people respected or thought were normal said, I like to play video games. I'm yeah. a gamer. I play games in my spare time. That's pretty cool. And that, you know, at first, people's reactions are like, oh, you do that? That's some, You do that? Like, you're a gamer? You know? Or people, when people, when I tell people I figure skate, I get some weird looks. They're like, you're this big, weird, like, bearded dude who is yeah. like into DIY and stuff and you have figure skates and I'm like yes I do. And then inevitably they kind of shift over to oh and then they start getting interested, they ask about it and they're like that's actually pretty cool. So oh, yeah, I think maybe like, it's not weird for dudes like Tom to ice skate. Yeah. It's not weird if you prove to them that it's not weird. Exactly. It's not weird that big bearded dudes like to figure skate because it's fun. You're going fast, you're doing tricks, it's like skateboarding with blades on your feet. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's just uh, really you, elegant skateboarding. Yeah, I know, right? So I think a lot of people think hobbies and stuff like are weird because they don't understand them or because they've been associated with weird people either in the media or in their past experiences. So you just have to push them past their pre-established biases. Yeah. And if you're confident about that, then you're most likely going to succeed. But if you're unconfident about it and you're very timid, then you're not. So just tell yourself that. Like, I'm confident about what I do. Um. The other thing I'll mention here is when it comes to your job, I think a lot of people start talking about themselves, about their jobs. Um, and that that's often boring. So I would, I would almost say like start with your hobbies. Start with something else that's cool. Yeah, because and if you have passion for your job, that's okay. But yeah, it, but people this, default to what do you do? Where do you go to school? That's not what I care about. Why are you asking me these questions? Yeah, a lot of people write their cover letters that way too. They start out like, dear... Mr. Johnson, my name is Andrew, and I am a sophomore at Iowa State University, majoring in mechanical engineering. Like, 
Okay. Like a program could have written that. I saw that at the top of your resume. I don't care. So start your resume or start your cover letter out with like a story. Like, dear Mr. Johnson, when I was eight years old, my dad bought me a Lego Mindstorms kit and I got super interested in robotics and then joined the club at my high school. Like, boom, there's a start to a story. It's much more interesting. Yeah. So I just think if you can if you can hone in on something that's interesting and try to steer clear of all the cliche things, ask yourself, like, if this person started with this, what I'm prepared to say, how interested would I be? Oh, yeah, that's probably not that interested. You probably nod your head because that's what you're supposed to do. And you just mm-hmm. listen to these two weird guys on the Internet say that you need listening skills. But for real, though, you're not interested in hearing about, oh, I'm a claims adjuster at this insurance company. You know, like, don't tell me about that. Tell me you're like super interested in linguistics or, you know, you're going out and like doing archery lessons tomorrow or something like that. It's way more. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, And if you're super passionate about your job, that's going to come through. So don't worry about that. I just think a lot of people default to the boring things because they think that's what other people want to hear or they think they're going to get called out for being weird if they really show who they are. Yeah, weird is weird is good sometimes. Um, yeah. The only limitations that I would place on some of these are, one, you don't want to say everything at once. So if you're going to bring up something cool about yourself that you do – you should probably wait until there's a reason to have brought it up. Either somebody asked you an open question or that topic came up and then it was your turn to speak. You let them finish their sentence and you're like, oh, I like that too. And now you can talk about it. But mm-hmm. – and and I've done this before. I used to do this where I'd run into like an old friend and then I would tell them all the things going on. They were just like, you can't just do that. Like I, don't, <laughs> I have no idea. I can't keep track of all this. This is too much information for me to process. Yeah. Let them know one cool thing at a time through the right context, and that'll be how you're humble. You're humble because yeah. you you let your skills go unnoticed, mm-hmm. and then you surprised them, and you were like, oh, yeah, I totally do that. I just didn't feel the need to tell you every cool thing I did immediately. Yeah. And that's useful. And there's also a nice mindset you can have about certain skills where you identify yourself more with the work or the studying or the process itself than the results. And this kind of needs to go opposite if you're working on like a resume. If you're talking about yourself in that sort of form, you want to focus on the results. But if you're talking to friends, you want to say, oh, I I study languages. You don't want to say, oh, yeah, I speak three languages and they're super cool and I travel all the time. You you just want to – this is what I do. If you are interested in the results that that activity has brought me, if you're like, oh, really? What languages do you study? Oh, well, I speak a bit of this and this. Now you can go in. But you, you want to yeah. start out identifying with the process itself. And mm-hmm. this also inoculates you a little bit to being concerned with criticism because if somebody criticizes how you're doing it, you'll say, oh, well, since I'm the kind of person who studies that, that information's really – that's useful. But if you identify as I'm Martin, language genius, and somebody <laughs> calls me out and I'm wrong, now I'm like, uh-oh, maybe I'm not a language genius. I that's feel bad true. now. But I am still somebody who studies language and now I can just absorb that. I think you and I were having a conversation about that the other day about like certain skills where it seems normal to say I know or I can do versus other skills where it seems a little arrogant like to say I can ice skate is a little more acceptable than to say I can speak French because a lot of people are overconfident in their ability to speak French or something. Yeah, well, I think with certain things you over or under assume, like with ice skating, I will under assume because I know most people don't know how to do that. So if you say you can ice skate, I default to, 
oh, they know how to ice skate a little bit. Yeah. But when it comes to like a language, I think a lot of people over overestimate what they're saying. They say, oh, I can totally speak this, but they really mean I can get through really basic like first year conversations. Yeah. And and I can do that fluidly, but they don't mean I can talk about uh, politics and how the Internet has changed technology. Yeah. And those are different things. So personally, I don't really like to say I learned a language. Mm-hmm. I like to say I, I study languages or I've been learning. I'm, I'm always still learning. There's still so much Spanish I don't know. So it's like using a verb that implies that you're still on the journey rather than implying that you have already done the thing. Yeah, and if I feel I'm on the journey, I don't think people are going to take that as quite as arrogant as they might take it if I just – and it, it depends on the topic, sure. But you basically don't want to imply that, yeah, I know everything about this. Let's talk about my accomplishments. Yeah. Because that's not what it's about, and that's not necessarily what they wanted to hear unless they asked for name the coolest three things that you're proud of doing. Now you can say it. Yeah, there you go. Because now they're wondering. Now they want you to brag a little bit. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to brag unless there's really a reason to. They ask you to do it. Mm-hmm. Another thing you were telling me about the whole, you know, don't just word vomit everything you do immediately. I think you were saying something along the lines of like it, it keeps you mysterious in a way, not in a bad oh, yeah. way, but like no, in a in a cool in way, in a cool way. Like over time, they can organically discover like, wait, you have a rap album out too? Like, yeah, that's, wait, that's what? cool, I- but if. I didn't know that. And there was one point after one of my one of my German classes back in university where I I was talking to some of my classmates after a class outside. And then my French teacher from previous years walked by and I just was like, oh, hey there. And I just started talking to him in French. And they were just like. You are the most interesting person right now (laughs) because because I wasn't every day like, oh, yeah, I totally studied French, too. Isn't that cool? Think I'm cool. If it comes out naturally and you're surprised. They will think it's cool. If mm-hmm. you shove it in their face, they won't like you very much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's all about how you choose to present those kind of things. All right, skill number nine is to build a forward-thinking mindset uh, or just having like an awareness of what's coming up in the future. So I like to think of this in terms of what is my life dependent on, my current life state, and what are my future goals dependent on. So my life... That can break down into, I have a home, I have certain relationships, I have health, I have finances, I have all these different like domains of my life. What are those dependent on? Well, my girlfriend's probably going to break up with me if I don't spend time with her and show her that I care about her. Um, I need to maintain the relationships with my family and my good friends and things like that. Well, and then I can move over to things like rent or my apartment. This apartment is a year-long lease. Um, Where do I want to be? After this apartment is done, do I want a different apartment? Do I want to stay here? And then you start to think of things that you need to either do or know about in the future, such as when is the renewal date for this apartment? At what point will the apartment complex just be like, yeah, we actually gave your apartment to somebody else because you didn't renew fast enough. And now you have to go live with a bunch of druggies like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend (laughs) tells that story all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that I don't want to call her out too much because that wasn't her fault. Was it wasn't her fault. They messed it up. <laughs> they did mess it up. But that could easily happen anyway. Yeah. So if you're constantly only thinking about the now, then stuff is going to sneak up on you, basically. Life's going to catch you off guard. Or you're not going to be able to achieve your goals as quickly as you'd like because you're not thinking about things that are coming up. Such as, like, I really want 
to participate in a bike race at some point soon. Like I'm getting into cycling a lot and I want to do that. Okay. Well, if I'm a now centered person, I'm like, well, I'm going to go outside and ride my bike and train. So I'm really good at bike racing. But then it turns out you have to sign up for the bike race by this date. Otherwise you're not in. (laughs) If I don't think about that thing in time, then very likely I might just show up at the race and then they'll be like, you're not actually registered, you know, or maybe I'll realize too late, like, oh crap, maybe I need to register for this thing. And then it's too late. I can't do it. You know, and that's, that's pretty low consequence thing. But if you build that future mindset where you're just kind of like constantly looping through the things you care about and things that are, um, that your life is dependent on, then you think about the actions you need to take. And it doesn't even mean you need to take them now, but it at least means you need to make a note in your task management system to do this thing later. You know, one thing I think about is, when, do my, when does my car oil need to be changed? Oh, well, there's a sticker right up in my car. It tells me the exact mileage. And that's going to happen, you know, in X number of days, most likely. So I'll just schedule that. That way I don't forget and I don't blow my car up. So yeah, that's useful. <laughs> yeah. And I think having a well-filled calendar is going to help with that. So mm-hmm. calendars and task managers that will remind you later. So like as an example, there's a class that I'm taking at the Botanic Gardens later this year. Mm-hmm. And it requires some supplies. So I set a task manager like reminder that will tell me a few weeks before it buy the supplies. I don't have to think about it now, but had I forgot about it until the day before and then, well, what am I going to do now? I can't get the supplies yeah. and I just, I just can't participate. Mm-hmm. So if you think about these things, mark them somewhere because you don't want to keep them in your head all the time. You want yep. them to be a reminder or in your calendar or something. Mm-hmm. I had a future awareness failure recently. Yeah. I had... A, a thing on my calendar for the eclipse and I had had it there for wow. years. I think I put it back there like on t- in 2012 or something. I just like, wow, somebody had tweeted like, Hey, there's a, tw- there's an eclipse in 2017. And I was like, that might be cool to watch. And I put it on my calendar. I remember like clicking five years forward in Google calendar to put it there. But even as it drew near, I did not think about what I might need. Like, I knew in my head that you need eclipse glasses, but I didn't really bring it to the forefront of my attention and think maybe I should buy eclipse glasses before like it gets to the week of the eclipse and now they're yeah. all sold out everywhere. So I actually didn't end up getting eclipse glasses and I didn't see the eclipse. <laughs> yeah, before every single person in Denver has the glasses on and they're looking up and then I'm just like, wow, this shadow is kind of cool. Yep. Uh, <laughs> No, I can't glance too long. I didn't really see anything. It was pointless. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't even see the eclipse if you look up. Like, you just, it looks yeah, normal. It's not, it's not useful. Yeah, not at all. So, yeah, if you're a future aware, then you can look at eclipses with classes That's true. that you bought. That's true. Maybe I'll mark down the next one. Boom. All right. The last tip, which this could also be its own episode. Oh, yeah. We have written down, be a good significant other we should probably just like both say like one or two things that we think are important because we obviously can't give the end all be all answers because every person is different. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, what, do, what do you got? Okay. So I want to, I want to talk about two things. Number one, um, when you're in a relationship, especially a long-term one, you have to be constantly vigilant about the need to communicate openly and communicate about things you're afraid to communicate. Because when you get in a relationship, that becomes your normal state. And then if something comes up, it becomes so easy to ignore 
Like if there's a problem, there's something that annoys you. It becomes so easy to ignore that because you don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. You don't want to start a fight or conflict. So you just never say anything. And, you know, that could, that could lead to your relationship going on for a long time uh, with both of you not being fulfilled. Or it could lead, it could build up to something really bad, like a huge fight down the line. So this is the same thing I've been told by mentors of mine when it comes to um, hiring. You know, actually, I went to, I went to a, an event last night put on by this company called Intercom. And they were like, if you have team members on your team that are not performing well, um, it's most likely your fault as a manager because they're not in the right role and you need to have a conversation with them, a hard conversation where you're like, you, this isn't working out. You're not doing things well. We need to figure out what changes do we need to make and do you need to make for you to get to the point quickly where you're happy with what you're doing and where you're, you know, you're performing well enough to our standards. Yeah. And I remember he was on stage and he's like, um, if you're the kind of manager that just one day like never says anything and then one day just says, Hey, I'm sorry, but you're fired. Like you're a stupid manager because yeah. you didn't have the guts to have that hard conversation with that employee. You didn't want to inconvenience yourself or face potential conflict to come to a good solution. So either you fire them and you're stupid or you never fire them because you don't want to do that either. You're afraid to do that. So you just let them putter along, not in the right role, wasting the best years of their career and not helping to bring your company to the right heights. And the same thing applies to your relationships. If there's a problem in your relationships, whether it's a problem between, you know, of, of your own or problem of something they're doing or just a problem in your dynamic, if you let that fester for a long time, then you aren't doing you're doing a disservice to both yourself and to your significant other because you're letting your girlfriend or boyfriend waste the best years of their life in a bad relationship or dysfunctional relationship. And likewise, if you just one of the day one of these days be like, wow, this is really not cool and you break up with them without ever bringing that up, you're you're just like that stupid manager who fired somebody without ever giving them a chance to fix things. Because you didn't want to yeah. have the hard conversation. You didn't want to have to go forward and maybe have it be rocky for a little while while you're trying to fix a problem. You were afraid of that, so you just broke up with them instead. So be willing to have those tough conversations. And it's going to suck sometimes, and a lot of times it's going to force you to look at look really hard at yourself and look at the things you're doing wrong. I've had this a lot with my relationship. You know, I would say greater than 50% of the time that I have conversations like this with Anna, I come to the conclusion that part of it is my fault. You know, or maybe it's all my fault. And a lot of times I think, or I come, to, I, I come to discover that something she's doing that I don't like is actually a knock-on effect of something I'm doing that she didn't like, but maybe it's something that's kind of low level. Maybe I'm like coming home every day and going to play Overwatch for too much and I'm not spending time around her. And that's why maybe she's not giving me the attention I want or she's kind of as a coping mechanism and not like a sad coping me- mechanism, but just sort of like, okay, he's not really around giving me the attention I want, so I'm going to go do this instead. Now I perceive that she's off doing her own thing, and I'm like, I feel like we're not connected enough. I feel like we're not talking enough. It's because you're doing this. Or is it because I'm doing this over here, and that's why you're doing this? So yeah, have those hard conversations and always go into those hard conversations without pride and be willing to uh, dig deep into your own behaviors and figure out what am I doing that's actually causing this problem or what could I do that's going to solve it. It is almost never the 100% fault of the other person. Or if it is, 
you know, maybe that's not the right relationship for you, but I, I believe it's almost never the hundred percent fault of the other person unless they're like a crazy person. Yeah. The other thing is this is something that I have learned very well over the years. When there's like a fight, like or even a small little spat in your relationship, or the the other person says something that hurts your feelings, you're gonna get defensive and you're gonna have the first immediate thing that comes to your mind is the defensive thing to say. Maybe it's like a little quip that's going to sting back or it's going to make you win the argument or it's going to make you win the exchange. Like, ha, my insult was better. (laughs) Um, I'm ruining my life right now. Take that. (laughs) Exactly. Like, so you want to win the exchange or you want to come out on top. You want to feel like you won the conflict because that's just human. But ask yourself at the end of those little fights, those little conflicts, when you do that, how do you feel? Because I always feel terrible. You know, if I if Anna says something offhandedly that hurts my feelings and I come back and I just like, you know, say something snippy, I might have won the exchange. But now we're driving home in silence because I hurt her feelings. So I have had to learn to pause, swallow my pride, swallow the hurt that I have and ask myself, what is the response that is going to make us happy an hour from now? What is the response that's going to grow our relationship into the future? That's going to make us more uh, closer. That's going to make us better at communicating openly. It's going to make us trust each other more. And I'll say that even if it hurts my pride in the now, or even if it sucks to say it, I say it. Yeah. A lot of times it's not just, you know, a lot of times it's not just saying something. A lot of times it is taking time that I don't want to take to console her or something. You know, maybe we're in a fight. And she walks out of the room because that's kind of how she deals with, um, you know, being sad. And that's kind of how she comes down from the emotions of a fight. You know, all, all I ever want to do, I'm just like, man, I just want to go in my room, play Overwatch and like let this cool off. And I'm like, nope, you got to march your butt into that room about five minutes later. And you got to say you're sorry and you got to put your arm around her and you got to hold her. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. That is what you have to do to make this right and to make things positive in the future. It's not yeah. always about you. Sometimes you have to sacrifice your your current wants for the betterment of the relationship. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to say here is that this is kind of just how I view relationships, and I think it's been helping. Mm-hmm. I think it helps, at least at least with this one, it's working out pretty well. Um, but I like to view a relationship as as two independent people that choose to be together. Mm. They're not they're not completely dependent on each other. And I don't just mean like financially. I understand that in some cases you've got one significant other who isn't going to work. Maybe they're maybe they're staying home with kids yeah. and then the other one works. I don't mean like you can't you can't be a little financially thing and you're trading off duties. I mean they're emotionally independent. They're their own people. They've got their own hobbies. They didn't sacrifice things like interests and, and maybe they sacrificed uh, specific dreams sometimes like I'm going to go move to this crazy place or something. Yeah. But they shouldn't have to sacrifice a whole part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that being two independent people means that they should support each other both for personal development and professional development. I know that I continuously want to help Ashley on any, any goals and growth and things that she wants to do because if I get hit by a bus Or maybe someday she wants to break up with me. And if someday she wants to break up with me, I want her to feel free to do that without thinking, but if I leave him, 
I'm screwed, so I better stay with him and have a mediocre relationship and pretend I'm happy. I don't want that. She should only be with me because every day she woke up and she said, I still want to be. Mm -hmm. There should be no, I'm literally helpless without them. Somebody save me. Yeah. And basically, regardless of anything that happens, regardless of how long we're together, regardless of whether we have some crazy fight someday and break up, no matter what happens, I want both of us to be able to look back and say that was a positive experience and I don't wish it away, even if it has ended now. Yeah. So it's kind of like I want to give in a way that is not dependent on her staying with me. What I give her is hers to keep any any help developing, any gifts, any any kindness or honest words or criticisms are hers for her development, not to make her stay attached to me. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. 100 percent. Well, we should probably do a full episode on this topic at some point. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's yeah, a lot more I think that's the main thing right now. But. <laughs> but yeah, I think those are some some good things for people to think about. So, I think we covered it pretty well. Yep, hour and a half. Nice, nice 10 lesson. Yeah, 10 lesson we ended episode. up... We, I was remember when we started recording. I was like, "We'll make this one shorter." <laughs> of course, it's like no. Well, honestly, I thought it might even end up longer than this. So I'm proud that we stuck to an hour and a half. We did, yes. And the last episode was an hour and a half. We are trending upward in length. Whatever. Um, who cares? <laughs> Hopefully, we're trending better in quality. So then, if that's the trade off, I don't care. Oh yeah, I'm really happy with this episode. So hopefully, yeah. everyone else was as well. Um, show notes are over at cigpodcast.com slash 175. 25 episodes to go until we hit the big two zero zero. Or if you are watching this on YouTube, you will find that link in the description down below. So definitely check those out. I did mention a few articles, uh, videos on the site, a couple of other external resources that you might find useful if you are looking to build your skills in any of these areas that we mentioned. So definitely check those out. Uh, If you guys have not done so already, one of the best ways to support this show is to go over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Not only does that give us feedback on what we're doing right and what we can improve upon, but it also helps to bump the show up the rankings in iTunes. Um, And another thing you can do if you haven't done it already is if you hit that subscribe button in iTunes, that's also a big signal to iTunes to say, hey, this show is growing. Let's put it on, you know, that education page so more people can find it. So that's definitely a way to help the audio feed grow other than that, just want to thank you guys again for listening. Really appreciate every minute of time you spend hanging out with us on the podcast. And we will see you in next week's episode, which will be back in the real studio because I'll be back. Thank you.